0: While some films are poetic, a poetic film should not be mistaken for one about poets. Christina Jeffrey's Sylvia, about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Brian Gilbert's Tom and Viv, about T.S. Eliot and Vivian Haywood. And John Maybury's The Edge of Love, about Dylan and Caitlin Thomas. Films about poets that are in themselves poetic would include Julian Schnabel's Before Nightfalls, which examined the persecuted life of Cuba's Ronaldo Arenas. Jane Campion's Bright Star, which focuses on Fanny Braun's tragic relationship with John Keats, and Pablo Lorraine's Neruda, about Chilean dissident Pablo Neruda. Somewhere between those two notions, we have films with poetic titles. Twilight of a Woman's Soul, Days of Heaven, Days and Nights in the Forest, Shadows in Paradise, Songs from the Second Floor. But for me, the most evocative title is the 1953 masterpiece, directed by Kenji Mitsugushi, Ugetsu Monogatari a ghost story set in 16th-century Japan. Here to explain what the title means is regular critic for Sight and Sound, Tony Rains. Ugetsu literally means, well, U means rain and Getsu means moon, and Monogatari means a story. So the title literally translates as Tales of the Rain and the Moon. The poetry of Ugetsu Monogatari does not end with its title, and much of that poetry stems from its visual beauty. By the time Mitsugushi came to direct it, he had already made close to 90 feature films, dating all the way back to the silent era. However, for American and European cinema, the dates for the silent era are somewhat different from Japan. In the West, it refers to films made before 1927. But by the end of the 1930s, one third of Japanese films were still being made without sound, which means the age of exclusively visual storytelling lasted a lot longer. But that does not mean that those extra years allowed for greater experimentation with lighting, lensing, crane and tracking shots, or even emulsions. In fact, the first Japanese colour film, Carmen Come Home, was not made until 1951, and even then the producers made a second version in black and white. Such caution and conservatism stemmed from the fact that Japan had been an institutional monarchy since 1912. When Emperor Hirohito was instated in 1928, the country became increasingly militarised with the national cinema subject to restrictive state censorship. Restrictions on content impacted on the development of style. While there were some superb films made in that era, the style was repetitive to the point of static. Scene after scene was presented through a meticulously framed, but in near permanently immobilised camera, which with long takes simply observed the drama as it unfolded. In 1947, the late American film historian Donald Ritchie, went to Japan as a writer with the US military publication Pacific Stars and Stripes. Here is Ritchie in 1992 explaining when, why, and how that style came to an end, and more importantly, what came after it. I got there at the beginning of that period, which is called the occupation of Japan. It was an allied occupation. The Australians, New Zealanders, uh, the Americans were occupying the city, the egos of allies. And there was a very up feeling and this up feeling communicated itself to the Japanese who had just about had enough—not only of the war, but also all those people who got them into the war—and so now it was an absolutely clean slate, and they could really you know express themselves as individuals, as people—a thing they hadn't been allowed to do for you know a very long time—and I wanted to show what it was really like with people, you know, trying on trying on democracy to see if it fit. With that post-war release, Mitsugushi refined the technique of the long take. With one big re emphasis. He had already been moving the camera, but now he mobilised it in ever more ambitious ways. And through that, can we say, liberated technique, Mitsugushi explored with increasing probity the democratic ideals of feminism. As Mitsugushi's career progressed, and he secured greater control over his work, women became more central to his stories. And although those stories were almost always set in the past, Mitsugushi's eye was far from nostalgic. In fact, his view was critical, reinterpreting Japanese history from a female perspective. But that perspective offered a critique of the present. And just as other great directors frequently collaborated with the same actress, think of George Cukor and Catherine Hepburn, John Cassavetes and Gina Rowlands, Claude Chabrol and Stéphanie Andrain, Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullmann, Pedro Almodovar and Penelope Cruz, Between 1940 and 1954, Mitsuguchi worked no less than 15 times with one of Japan's greatest ever actresses, Kinua Tanaka. In fact, Tanaka then went on to become only the second woman from Japan to direct feature films, making six in all. However, not everyone is convinced of Mitsuguchi's feminist credentials. Here is film critic and professor of writing at Columbia University, Philip Lopate. There are two ways of looking at Mitsuguchi's relationship to women, as a proto-feminist or as an anti-feminist. The proto-feminist was he shows all of this sympathy and interest in women and their lives. And, and I sort of agree with that. He saw women as being enslaved by men and their desires and, you know, that men were always using women. The anti-feminist argument is that he makes them suffer all the time. So is this sadistic? Plus he treats it as a status quo, ultimately their suffering is not going to get them anywhere. They're not going to be able to be liberated in a sense. They can reach individual development, but they're not going to defeat a system which, in his words, enslaved them. Somewhat like Japanese authors, poets, and painters, who have for centuries used long scrolls to tell their stories, so too did Mitsugushi prefer to present his scenes in extended takes. Oftentimes an entire scene would be captured in a single shot. But more than that, Mitsugushi frequently moved the camera so that it no longer just observed the action, but rather commented on it. In that way, Mitsugushi presented his poetry, the lens, literally, the medium through which he revealed to us the often heartbreaking contradictions of human nature. For Ugetsu, the camera is rarely, if ever, still. It pans, it tilts, it tracks and even cranes. And as it moves, so does our perspective of a world in a constant state of flux. Emotions, ambitions, destruction, war and history, nothing stays the same. Whether he was conscious of it or not, Mitsugushi's camera had a parallel in Western cinema, with the likes of F.W. Murnau, Max Offels, and Orson Welles. Come on, boys! We're Union! Be careful, Charles! It's Kane. Pull your muffler around your neck, Charles! Kane, I think we shall have to tell him now. Yes. I'll sign those papers now, Mr. Thatcher. You people seem to forget that I'm the boy's father. It's going to be done exactly the way I've told Mr. Thatcher. There ain't nothing wrong with Colorado. I don't see why we can't raise our own son just because we come into some money. Almost all great auteurs pen their own pictures, and in Mitsugushi's case, for most of his career, he worked with the Yoshikata Yoda. Sometimes they created original material, but just as often, they based their work on the writings of others. However, what separates Ugetsu from almost every other adaptation is that it is taken from not one, not two, but three different sources. The first two House Amid the Thickets and The Lust of the White Serpent are short stories from a collection of nine ghostly tales published anonymously in 1776 by Ouida Akinari, anonymously because at the time Japan was a highly autocratic and feudal shogunate, of which Akinari's stories dared question its moral values. As for the third source, that comes from France in 1883 when Guy de Maupassant wrote How He Got the Legion of Honour. But what is curious is that De Maupassant is not listed anywhere in the credits. Because, and this is even more intriguing, Ugetsu does not use any of De plot, but instead just borrows the central character and with a simple name change inserts his ambition into the screenplay. Yet something similar had been done before, and in Japan. Three years prior to Ugetsu, Akira Kurosawa had attempted a similar feat when he delivered his first masterpiece, Rashomon. Kurosawa based his film on two short stories, Rashomon and In a Grove, both written by Ryunosuke Akatagawa. But it is not just using separate stories as source material that leads Mitsugushi's film to Kurosawa's. The greater connection is cinematographer Kazuo Miyagawa. There is no other way of stating it. Miyagawa was one of the greatest and most influential cinematographers in the history of the art. Incredibly active over a career spanning 60 years, Miyagawa lit and lensed over 130 films. In fact, Ugetsu was one of four films he worked on in 1953 alone. And besides collaborating with Mitsugushi and Kurosawa, Miyagawa later worked with other masters, including Yasujura Ozu and Koni Chikawa. In other words, the greatest of Japan's post-war directors. But no matter who he worked with, Miyagawa's camera always elevated the material. Here is American cinematographer John Bailey, whose credits include Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, Groundhog Day, In the Line of Fire, and As Good As It Gets, speaking earlier this year with Matt Severson of the Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. You know, Miyagawa was a working professional cinematographer who also happened to be an artist but I think he thought of himself as a working cinematographer before anything else, and that's why there's such a wide range of kinds of movies that he did. Well, you have two films done with uh, two different directors uh, within a few years of each other that represent an incredibly different uh, cinematography style done by the same man who really was like a lot of the great Hollywood studio cinematographers, did not have a signature style, the way so many cinematographers do today but essentially you know tailored the lighting compositional and movement style of his work to the particular movie and the particular director countless films have drawn inspiration from great painters Toulouse-Lautrec all across Bas Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge in Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon you can see the influences of William Hogarth Thomas Gainsborough and Johann Heinrich Fuseli while for Cabaret, Bob Fossey drew on the works of Otto Dix, Max Beckman and George Cross. And for Last Angle in Paris, Bernardo Bertolucci went one further by using several works by Francis Bacon in his opening credits. However, it is very rare that a painter becomes a cinematographer, which is true of Miyagawa. So, when Bailey referred to Miyagawa as an artist, he was not being extravagant. In fact, long before Miyagawa even ventured onto a film set, He was a painter of such prowess that by the time he was a teenager, he was already selling his work. Miyagawa had begun by studying Sumi-e. In Sumi-e, the scenes are defined not by variations of colour but by different shades of black. And Miyagawa often said that his fundamentals in the art taught him how to see, and that his knowledge of chemistry taught him the basics of filmmaking. Whether watching Rashomon or Ugetsu, it is hard not to be struck by the visual beauty where every scene borders on the painterly. For Rashomon, Miyagawa used a high-contrast lighting scheme that ensured the forest's deep shadows suddenly gave way to dappled light, all of which enhanced Kurosawa's theme of truth and the ego that clouds out judgment. But for Ugetsu, Miyagawa delivered low-contrast silver images so ethereal they appeared dreamlike. To understand how Miyagawa achieved such incredible versatility, Let us consult with his long-time camera assistant Masahiro Miyajama. Here is Miyajama speaking at the University of Rochester in April 2018 with translation provided by Eiko Masubishi. As said before, he made 130 films or so, um, some in black and white, some in color. And I do firmly believe that the origin of Miyaga's work does go back to the three or four years spent in the laboratory, as in the developing lab. And that is where he learned the fundamentals of filmmaking. And I believe that there he actually learned almost the theory of filmmaking itself, But what's special about Miyagawa is that, in addition to the theory, he also had the sensibility and the expressiveness that he had innately. And so, therefore, he had the theory in front of him that was backed up by his expressiveness that really helped to create his work. Such expertise undoubtedly aided Miyagawa to secure such different looks for Ozu's floating weeds, Ichikawa's An Actor's Revenge, and Kurosawa's Kagamusha. But it was in 1960 that Miyagawa forever altered the art of cinema. Working on Ichikawa's historical drama, Her Brother, Miyagawa innovated the technique of bleach bypass, whereby instead of the laboratory washing away the silver nitrate in the negative, that element was retained. This results in a desaturated look, which nonetheless delivers luxurious shadows within which it is still possible to see detail. For cinematographers working today in the digital format, the option is rather standard and presents little risk. But without Miyagawa's innovations, who knows when, or if ever, anyone would have thought of it. Certainly the development enhanced the poetry of the medium, and cinematographers who have used it since include such greats as Vittorio Storaro, Roger Deakins, and Janusz Kaminski. But the first time I really noticed it was the work Darius Kanji did on David Fincher's 7. What sick, ridiculous puppets we are, and what a gross little stage we dance on, what fun we have, dancing, fucking, not a care in the world not knowing that we are nothing. We are not what was intended. Oh, wait, there's a lot more. On the subway today, a man came up to me to start a conversation. He made small talk, this lonely man talking about the weather and other things. I tried to be pleasant and accommodating, but my head began to hurt from his banality. I almost didn't notice it had happened, but I suddenly threw up all over him. He was not pleased, and I couldn't stop laughing. No dates placed on the shelves and no discernible order. Just as mine poured out on paper. In 1951, Kurosawa's Rashomon had been awarded the Golden Line at the Venice Film Festival. Deeply envious of his compatriot's success, Mitsuguchi went there intent on emulating his younger colleague. Here is Tony Raines once more. The film did go to Venice. Uh, where, in fact, it won a Silver Lion, uh, just as uh, Life of O'Haru had done the year before. That year, 1953, there was no Golden Lion awarded and the jury uh, announced um, on the closing night of the festival that they didn't see any film that they thought was worthy of the Golden Lion. So, although Mizoguchi came top, it was not actually the top prize. It, the top prize was withheld that year. They said that Ugetsu's story was too artificial. As I left, I was told that the film didn't have the stature of a Grand Prix winner. As for Mitsugushi himself, although he was disappointed not to have secured the Golden Lion, he privately admitted a disappointment with his own efforts, saying that his treatment of the story had not been hard enough, which reinforces the opinion that Mitsugushi, like Luchino Visconti, made historical dramas not to quench any nostalgic yearnings for the past, but rather to use it to examine the present. Happily, history has shown Ugetso to be much greater than the Venice jury and Mitsugushi originally thought. Without doubt, it is one of cinema's supreme achievements, and its poetry offers deep insights into the frailty of our condition.